we know that that death is coming and that we'll be prepared to, uh, for it. Try to face it. Yep, try to face up it. to it. Is there's nothing, you have no choice. So that's the way it is. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today's episode focuses on mortality and the people we love, that is the inevitability of losing the people closest to us. It feels like the theme of losing one's parents in particular has been kind of a subtext for this podcast since it began, and no doubt this is because it's been something of a personal preoccupation for me. I talked with writer Ann Newman about late life quality of life way back in episode 25, and the topic of how you deal with losing a parent has come up again and again on the podcast, including my conversation with Jeffrey Taylor about the constellations of literature in episode 90, and my discussion of fear with Eva Holland in episode 112, and Marco Ferrerese's report about losing his own parents to COVID-19 in episode 111. It was the COVID-19 pandemic itself that made me think of my own parents' mortality in more concrete ways, in part because as elderly people, they're at high risk during the pandemic, and in part because I live near them when I'm not traveling, and I'd meant to talk to them about a number of late-life issues, including how to take care of things when they die. I think the COVID-19 pandemic kind of tipped my hand in this regard, so early in the quarantine, I went next door and presented them with a death checklist, which as morbid as it sounds, is actually a good set of health care and financial and funeral procedures to have figured out as your loved ones get older and face the inevitability of death. I've added links to death checklist resources in the show notes should you be curious about how to talk about these procedures with your own family. Of course, this process involves reminding your loved ones that you do love them, and even though going through the death checklist with my own parents ended up being a weirdly high-spirited event, I wanted to go back and talk to them about death in a less procedural way that addressed the fact that I will miss them when they're gone. My parents, George and Alice Potts, have appeared on this podcast before in the context of travel. And having a podcast actually made a great pretext to talk to them about mortality in a structured and detailed and affectionate manner. When I sat down to talk to them about death, I brought an outline like I do for any interview, and this sense of formality gave our discussion a sense of gravitas, even as it ended up being emotionally resonant and kind of fun, as you'll no doubt hear as the conversation plays out. I talked to my parents in the kitchen of their own home. You can hear the refrigerator ice maker rumbling in the background from time to time. And we covered all kinds of topics, from what it's like to get older, to how my parents reacted to the death of their own parents, to how traveling in distant countries like India can give you an important perspective on how other cultures talk about and experience the inevitability of death. We start by talking about how the pandemic made our own conversations about death easier in its own weird way. Let's listen in. survived a pandemic together before. Mm-hmm. Now we hope this is the last. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> this is the last. We may not survive this one, or after this one's over, we may not see another one in our lifetime. Well, all of the above. Just take your pick. Mom is hoping for an awesome pandemic in 2028. Also an Olympic year. Um, and I mean, it's sort of dumb chance that we're neighbors during this time. I mean, we live next door to each other, but I'm often gone. You know, I travel a lot and it just so happens that here I am. And so I get to sort of be your warden. I get to boss you around 
and help structure your day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's I think it's been pretty good. You know, um, it's not like I'm trapped in the same building as you. Like I have my own house. I get to stay in there by myself and stare off into the middle distance. And if I want to, I can come over and hang out with you guys. Um, but it's been nice. Like we've hung out, we've been neighbors for 15 years, but we've spent far more time with each other during the pandemic um, than we ever did before. So among the many things that we've done here together, we sat down and I brought a checklist over. And what was the checklist about that we reviewed together? Tests that we could do during this time. Like, like exercises, jumping jacks and no. sit-ups? No, that's too easy. <laughs> <laughs> Things like make a list of uh, items, uh, chores, tasks that need to be done in your absence. And where important files are. In your absence, meaning that you guys are going to go off on a, a vacation trip. to... It's going to be our <laughs> eternal absence. <laughs> <laughs> so actually, what I brought in was a death checklist. Um, yes, that was preparing us for our <laughs> eternal absence. Exactly. No, you preparing know. you for our eternal absence. Right. Well, it's um, months ago, I read this um, death checklist, basically. It was for the state of Washington, but I think about every state has them sort of a rundown that you should go through in the event of losing loved ones. And, uh, you know, I thought for a long time, well, eventually we can get that covered. And now we're sort of trapped together for the pandemic. And one of my worries during the pandemic is keeping you guys away from other people, keeping you guys with clean hands and not exposed to diseased people because you're in the demographic that probably does the worst with the pandemic, right? So it was sort of a funny context to bring in the the, the death checklist because it was strangely happy-go-lucky. You know, like, what do we care? Let's just talk about what's going on. Uh, And so we talked about things like, and I'll put this in the show notes, that um, you can find these death checklists, but basically it's for, for the survivors, for the people who have lost a loved one, is to go through and understand how you have to get multiple copies of the death certificate. It's making sure that not just funeral arrangements are in place, but what did the people want their funeral to be like, right? Um, where, where is the will? Where is the trust? Where is the safe deposit box? Where are the deeds? What are the intention for the heirlooms? How are the bank accounts and passwords accessed? What's the insurance situation, including not just you know, life insurance, but property insurance and things like that. Um, do you know what kind of obituary they want and do they want help writing it? And so we, we sat down here maybe for almost three hours uh, and we talked about that kind of stuff. Um, Mom, do you want, do you have any eulogy requests? Do you want the pastor to do it or do you want us to do it? Well, I don't care. It just seems like sometimes the family... It's hard for them to think of everything, and it's nicer to have somebody else do it, unless you want. But, but to. you just prepare the eulogy. No, in I, advance. I would actually do a good eulogy. That's right. the thing. I'm I'm a professional writer, right. and I know you guys pretty well. Okay. After living next door for 15 years, after having grown up in your you home. Do it. Then. But it, but I don't have to. Like yeah. if you think that that's inappropriate, well, then later I invite you guys to my house. We watched 
the Kansas City Chiefs Wasp play on YouTube for the 12th time, and we FaceTime with our family. And in a way, talking about death in the context of death planning, we were sort of punchy, like we were making jokes, right? Dad said that he was going to see how much it cost to rent an entire page of the Salina Journal for his obituary. We're going to write our own obituaries. And I've got to check and see what a whole page on the Salina Journal was going to cost for my <laughs> obituary. We're, we're dad, Dad's funeral... Dad's funeral is going to have an eight-hour preamble where we go through his entire genealogy from from Charlemagne to the present day. Well, also, you guys thought about songs you wanted to play at your funeral. Exactly. And how many did you come up with, Mom? Well, quite a few, but Dad thought I should narrow it down a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure that in the funeral they want... 28 songs to sing. It's going to be a little long. They may have to take a bathroom break or something. Well, the funny thing is, and, you know, who knows what this portends, but mom had 22 songs, and she can add to or subtract to it if she wants. Dad had one. Anyway, we were just talking about the idea of death in a very candid way. Uh, And so this time has made me think... uh, the weirdest thing is I'm going to miss you guys, right? I've spent all this time with you guys. And for so many things in life, maybe not travel necessarily, but for many things, if I want to know something, I'll ask you for advice. Well, one thing I can't really ask you for advice for when you've died is how do I deal with the death of my parents? When I miss my parents, who do I ask? Who do I go to for advice? How do I get perspective? How do I figure out the genealogy stuff that dad knew so well? How do I get those stories about small town child life that mom knew so well? So I was thinking this might be my time to ask you guys in the context of what it was like for you guys to, to lose your parents. We do some pretty goofy social stuff here during quarantine. One of it is we ate sandwiches at my house and we watched the 1985 World Series, Game 7, when the Royals, our team, beat the Cardinals 11 to nothing. And Herbie Rolfe must have come up about 10 times. Your dad, mom, your dad, just because we knew exactly where he was watching that game. Right. And we knew who his favorite players were. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and so in some way, Herbie Rolfe has been gone from us for 18 years. But in some ways, it's as if we're still imagining him a couple counties over, sitting on his bed watching the baseball game, thinking about how much he likes Frank White and Brett Saberhagen. Right. right. And then sometimes we'll be sitting here eating. And Dad, George, you eat a little bit slow sometimes. And we'll think, well, what did Mary Potts Ashford think when her little son was just talking and eating, right? You know, that we, in, in there's different ways where your mom also is very much alive in our memory and we talk about her a fair amount, right? And in fact, I realize this is a long preamble. I want to hear from you guys in a second. Before I left for Korea, I took a video of your farm mom, your childhood place, with your father, who was, I think, in his late 70s, as you're in your late 70s now. And it's just the funniest little bit of video. Oh, so now it's time to meet my old grandfather. (laughs) The old bull himself. The old bull himself. Now, uh, we're talking to a class full of Korean students. Oh. 
or at least I, I will be when I put this videotape in. Yeah. And this is my grandfather. He's going to be 79 probably <laughs> by the time you see this. But he's still running all over the place and getting into all kinds of trouble. Yeah, you ain't a kid. Right. <laughs> and uh, he oh, was... Oh, he's taking pictures right now. Oh, yeah, he's videotaping it. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, he's crazy as I thought he was. Yeah, he was. So, uh, Grandpa here was born in New Mexico, and he's been living in Kansas ever since he was 11 years old. And he's a farmer, and he's grown just a little bit of everything. And why don't you say something to the kids in Korea? I wouldn't know what to say. I can't, I can't talk Korean. Can't talk Korean. Yeah. Why don't you just give him a wave? Yeah. Okay. I can do that. All right. Yeah. And we'll get on out to the field and, and see some more stuff. It's here. such a characteristic Herbie Rolf moment where he just sort of happy-go-lucky and he's not really sure what the video camera is all about. Mm -hmm. And um, he's just sort of vernacular and upbeat and he's trying to imagine what it must be like for Korean students to eventually watch him in a room, right? <laughs> and so that's sort of kept him alive for me even though he's been gone for a while. Same, your mom, dad, uh, she spoke at a family reunion in the 1980s. This is a very special occasion for my parents. I am the only one left of six children. I was the kid that was born with a heart murmur and couldn't live eight years. I'll be 78 in January, and I'm living a good, good life. What do I do with my time? Putter. Uh, I live in an apartment complex that has uh, bridge sessions twice a week. That's my only diversion. People say, oh, Mary, we need you in a bridge club. Oh, Mary, wouldn't you like to join this luncheon bridge club? I've had two husbands with an active social life. I've traveled extensively. I just love sitting in my big green chair and watch what everybody else is doing. It's a good life, and I'm blessed. And she sort of started talking about one thing, and then she started talking about another thing, and then she started talking about another thing. She was just a little bit scattered and a little bit affected, which is very much who she was. That was Murr. Yeah. <laughs> And so I guess I'm curious to know what it was like to lose those people that we know and remember very well. Now, Mom, you talked about your father, Herbie, lost his dad when he was 11, maybe? Younger than that. I think, I think he was 10. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, which sort of made him an adult pretty fast. You know, he has an eighth grade education. One of the smartest guys I knew but had an eighth grade education and was really farming full time by the time he was in his mid-teens. And a very good writer. Yeah, very funny. Um, but I bring him up actually to, to throw a question over to you, Dad, that of the four grandparents I have, um, there is one of them that I never met. And that was your dad, who died when you were 15. Losing your parents when you're 15 forces you to come to terms with loss yeah. at a very young age. So I'd like to just kick things off a little bit by talking about what that was like, you know. Well, one thing, he was never really healthy during my life. I mean, he was 50 years old when, I, when he died. I was 15, and I think he had his first heart attack when I was four. And uh, I really knew a healthy, did not know a healthy Dallas Potts. Now, he and I were, really got along well. Uh, he liked to listen to the, the fights on... Uh, the radio, and Joe Lewis was his favorite. Of course, Joe Lewis was the, the, the famous heavyweight 
champion at that time. And he liked the Chicago Bears. And, and when they were on the radio in a, in a football game, we would sit down and, and listen to that. Uh, so there were, he would have these heart-to-heart -heart talks with me. A lot of them were discipline types of talks, like you and Ed. Now tell me what you and Ed were doing. And, and, and you know, you always have to tell me the truth because I know when you're not telling me the truth. And mom used to discipline me with a, a little ruler that had a piece of metal through it, the middle of it, so that it is easy to draw lines on. And she kept it in the silverware drawer. And there were times that I had, and, and, and when she when she wiped me with that that ruler, you know, it stung on the back of my legs. But there were many times when Dad was disciplining me with a heart to heart talk. I felt like saying, "Dad, could you please just let Mom have me go to the ruler, get the ruler out <laughs> out of the the kitchen uh, uh, drawer, and have her paddle me because this is much more painful <laughs> than that." Did his death come as a surprise, or did you find ways to psychologically prepare yourself for the fact that he would be gone? We did. He'd had a couple other heart attacks when he was taken to the hospital in, a, in an ambulance. Uh, and so, and I talked, he talked to his cardiologist years later. And one of the problems that he had, it was a problem with my mother and my sister, that he was a heavy smoker. And the doctor told me that he smoked two packs a day and that he just couldn't get him to quit. An interesting story that you've told me many times is how you had a friend who sort of wasn't very nice to his dad, and you thought to yourself, I'd give anything to yeah. have my own dad back. Yeah. So, so I'm just curious about, like, emotionally, what it was like to not have a dad? Well, it was not good, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I, my, my memory, it was very, it disturbed me a lot. I had several friends that just, they were teenagers and, act, and becoming independent. And they were constantly at battle with their fathers. And, you know, they were 16, 17, even 18 years old, some of them. And my dad had died when I was 15. And I, I just kind of thought, gosh, I'd give anything to have my dad alive now. Uh, and... We got along just fine, and I, it was really hard for me to understand why they didn't get along with their fathers. And I thought, I'd, I'd give anything to have him here right now. It's almost like there's a certain privilege in everything you have. And when you have a father, it's easy to forget that some people don't, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, like, in what ways did you miss your father? What, what, what ways, how was that emotionally to be a teenager? <laughs> Well, one of the things I missed, the heart-to-heart -heart talks. Oh, really? <laughs> that we had. Well, many of them were not discipline-related. Uh -huh. And he would, he would tell me stories and, and when he was young. It is sort of extra sad and poignant when you lose a parent when you're young. But it's just sort of more normal when you lose your parents when you're an adult and when they're older. But in a sense, that doesn't make you miss them any less, Right. And John Prine, uh, the, the singer, sort of the country bluegrass singer who I've been a fan of and I have sort of introduced you guys mm -hmm. to, he said that realizing that you're not going to see this person again is always the most difficult part of uh, someone dying. But then you're glad you have that person in your life. The happiness and sadness get all swirled up together. Mm -hmm. 
So I think one thing about losing someone, it's sort of a bittersweet thing because there's so many memories tied into it. So let's fast forward a little bit to that time in life when maybe you thought you would lose your adult parents and how you mentally prepared for that and what it's, what it's been like. I mean, was that, was that hard? You know, when your, your mom died at 86 and your mom and dad died in their 80s. But um, what was that like? You know, I, unless you're at their deathbed, uh, and, and in all cases, I wasn't present at their death. But I do remember mom died on a Tuesday and it was Memorial Mother's Day on the, on, on the, the Sunday prior to that. And she was not doing well. And... Um, so we, we talked, she had a picture of she and dad on her, uh, their first anniversary that was sitting on the table next to her, her bed at the nursing home. And we talked about that relationship and, and, uh, just talked about, uh, you know, a lot of family types of things because I knew it wasn't going to be very long. And, uh, the last thing she said, she said, George. I want you to remember, life is beautiful. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I think she had a feeling that, well, she just slowly was going down. Oh, yeah. Physically and stuff. And uh, and she was ready, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, with your dad, Mom, I remember him getting older and then sort of losing his wife. Um first to Alzheimer's and then to death. Mm -hmm. And then he lost his leg. <laughs> and it was sort of a poignant thing for me because I, I remember in a way he hadn't accepted he was in his 70s. And he was like, well, damn it, I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk with one leg, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And so I remember him bound and trying to figure things out. It's like, well, screw it. I'm not going to let this defeat me, right? Um, yet, you know, he couldn't. I think by that time he was probably in his 80s. Mm -hmm. He was. So in a way, you know, your life is beautiful moment is really a beautiful moment to have experienced. Yeah. Um, do you remember any sort of last moments of energy? I mean, your dad was a force of personality. You know? Oh, he was. He was a, yeah. Mm. Do you remember saying goodbye to him or? Well, we would go up and visit him regularly, but, you know, you never knew when you visited whether that would be the last time. But my brothers called and said that dad was, you know, uh, not as strong and ebbing. And so probably a good thing to come up. And we could tell, you know, he, he, I felt like we could tell that he knew his end was coming. And uh, although he didn't tell us this, but. I'm sure he was thinking as he stood there because he didn't talk very much at that time. He just listened to us talk. Well, the one he was, he was just uh, sitting there thinking. Now remember what I told you. Remember, your good name. A good name is important. Telling the truth is important because people uh, appreciate character and honesty. And he said, you know, he, he didn't say this, but then I recalled saying, I need the truth, and whatever happens, I want to know it first. And so, you know, 
dad was real upfront with us. And we knew we would not lie because we knew that if, he, if we did and he found out. That was one common thing about our respective fathers. It's interesting. I don't know if they had a dad at training academy, but they both sort of had some, they knew how to instill character. What about for your mom? Just because her decline was longer and your dad was really good with her. Really faithful yeah. to her. Yeah. I always said, <laughs> you know. George, you're a good guy. <laughs> I hope you treat me <laughs> as well as my dad treated my mom when I get old and forgetful. <laughs> uh, well, this is this is an aside, not to interrupt you, but I remember when we were sort of unnerved by Grandma's decline, mm -hmm. Grandpa would go and flirt with her, you know, mm -hmm. that she was sort of curled up in a nursing home bed, and he'd say, what color are your eyes, you know? your hair you're looking good today and it was just like oh my god you gave grandpa these superpowers right <laughs> so yeah that, that's a tall and order she wasn't at that many at that time she was not comprehending anything yeah. really but he for she was in the nursing home for 12 years something like that 11 12 years he lived the farm was 14 miles from the nursing home he went to the nursing home and fed her lunch every, every day. day seven days a week for the entirety of said, the remainder way, of her life. If they're too busy and they don't have time to feed her, he said, I know that she'll do fine on one meal a day. <laughs> well, I, I remember too that if her bed sheets hadn't been changed or if his ba her bathroom was dirty, I wouldn't have wanted to work at that place. <laughs> no. Because he advocated for her. Oh, yes. He was her advocate. Right. And I often, I told George when we would go visit, I said, Gosh, George, I would just be really pleased if you were as faithful to me when I'm old as my dad is to my mother. He, he was a role model for us. I mean, and it wasn't just me who saw it. I mean, the whole family knew that he was uh, faithful. And I, I just think of when a young couple makes those wedding vows, you know, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and this poor sickness and in health, you know. Sometimes those things are just part of the wedding vow and people, when they're young, might not really think about it. But I thought about it when I was older and saw my dad, <laughs> the way he treated my mom. And I thought, I told George, I said, I would be happy if he were just that nice to me when I'm that <laughs> old. <laughs> anyway. You know. We're finally getting to the emotional. We're all a little bit wet-eyed now. Yeah. Which we had our we had um, almost an hour of stoical Midwestern talk, which was good. But now it's um, sort of into that emotional texture. You know, I've I've often said that's a big part of my life that I wished that he had been able to to flirt with her in the Caribbean or something. Yeah. You know, that, that there was something very beautiful about his relationship with her. But it feels like in a way that their time together was compromised. Now, that was my teenage assessment. In a way, his love was very strong for her every day. But his, his love would not be in the Caribbean. I mean, well, played like, out in the Caribbean. They had, they had no <laughs> dream of ever doing or wanting to do that. Well, I'm superimposing my own love for travel over my grandfather. <laughs> well, in a way, I'm just thinking about the dreams 
of the beautiful experiences you have when you're older. To me, it felt like he didn't get those because he was spending time with his wife who was declining. But in a way, he made them beautiful because he went and flirted with her when everybody else was treating her just like a patient number 10. He would go and treat her like the woman he'd always loved. She had a cold one day, and I said, and we had gone to, to, you know, visit him, and we had stopped by on our way into town, and then we went to the farm, and he said, oh, I'm going to go to the, I said, well, we were just there, Dad. He said, well, she's got a cold, and she said, you know, they get really busy, and she can't breathe very well, and he said, I'd just really like to go and clean her nose and wipe her eyes so that she can breathe better. And I just thought, you know, in sickness and in health, richer for poor, better or worse, you know. He truly, he truly kept his marriage vows to her. In a way, that sort of became his job. He farmed from about age 15 to however old he was when he retired. And even when he retired, he'd always go and fuss around. Oh, help his right. sons, right? He's more than 65. But then it's like his full-time, you know, he could have sat and bought a VCR and watched videotapes, but it's as if his full-time yeah. job was loving his wife, you know? Even when she didn't really recognize him, even when she wasn't able to walk around with him, he'd go and feed her and flirt with her and and um, and make sure that those nurses were doing their job because they would get it from him if they weren't. Right, right. But it's funny, it's sometimes, you know, mom wouldn't be real coherent, you know, and then as the, uh, we, we would visit with her, you know, there was just like maybe a little spark, and you could just tell that she knew what was going on. But then it didn't last real long, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was traveling, when I had to do that education consulting on a part-time basis, I would always, when I was in that part of the state, and this was after your grandmother died, I would stop by the nursing home and see him. And he would be lying in the nursing home and the television would be on. And they just turned the television on, I guess. But he he just never paid attention to it. And I would come in and he'd have me turn it off. And I would talk to him. Uh, He was lying quite weak, really, in in a bed in the nursing home. Uh, but we we had good conversations and he was always wanting to know how you guys were doing and how your mom was doing and how I was doing. Uh, he was always focused on other people. And so he was a very special person uh, along those lines. He did never, never did complain about himself, never. The detail in that is interesting about the TV because it really makes me wonder what old people did in the last years of your life before there was a TV, right? Because there's this, there's this awareness, again, going back to the historical awareness of death within families. And it wasn't a brazenness to death because one little aside I want to touch on is that when the three of us were in Korea with my students in the late nineties and we were singing karaoke songs, we sang, you are my son. Well, you guys sang, you are my sunshine and got a hundred. Listen to this podcast. Know that you, you did that, but you listen to the lyrics of you are my sunshine. That's a sad song. The other night, dear, as I lay sleeping, I dreamed I held you in my arms. When I awoke, 
was mistaken So I bowed my head and I cried That's about dealing with loss and, and feeling grief about knowing somebody's going to be gone. There's another song, I think that the Carter family sang it originally, um, and then I discovered it through a Woody Guthrie CD that I got in the 90s. It's called, Will You Miss Me When I'm Gone? people fade. I don't want to be too cynical about how things are, but in a way, things were so soulful when the songs of the time were about these strong emotions that we felt at the end of life. We don't think, we think sort of medically and procedurally about these very last years of life. Um, how do you guys want to spend your very last years of life? I think when you get our age, you, you and we're, we're retired and we have been for a long time and we've lived out here in the country with no television for almost 15 years and so we uh we spent a lot of time talking to each other and getting to know each other even better uh, as in, in a retirement but uh we also think we know that that death is coming and that we'll be prepared to uh, for it Try to face it. Yep. Try we'll to face up to it. There's, there's we'll nothing. You have it. no choice. So that's the way it is. Well, I was just thinking, you know, if the nursing home doesn't have a Wi-Fi signal that gives you access to Wikipedia. Right. And if it doesn't have access to at least three cats for you, Mom, <laughs> you guys are going to have to make some strong adjustments. Without well, Wikipedia and cats, the nursing guys. home does have cats. Usually <laughs> nursing homes have cats. And I have a feeling that they'll gravitate towards me. <laughs> when we, I, when, I do too. When we go to Bethany home to visit people from our church that live there, we generally sit around a large kind of dining room table and invariably, there'd be a cat in there, and invariably, it would gravitate to your mother. <laughs> yeah, I'm not worried about that. Nursing homes usually do have cats, and I'm pretty certain that they'll find me. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and that's just the way we like it. I want to read you guys some quotes that have to do with aging and the shortness of life. And I'm just curious to know what you think about them. See if you recognize where this one comes from. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. Enjoy your life with your wife, who you love, all the days of your meaningless life. Meaningless life. <laughs> Interesting. Is that from the Bible? It is, yeah. Uh -huh. can, you guess, like can you guess which book? 
I should. The word meaningless should be a tell. It would be, uh, well, life is meaningless. And was that Proverbs? Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes. yeah. I didn't think it was Proverbs. And then, yeah, I would. Ecclesiastes, right. The most uh, existential book of the Bible. I was looking at that and I thought, oh, well, here's, here's an, like, we are, this is like, this is like quarantine instructions for you guys. And especially dad, because it's sort of gendered in, in the male sense, but it says, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine. We don't have any wine here, but we have good tap water with a joyful heart for it is now that God favors what you do. Even in a quarantine, enjoy your life with your wife, who you love all the days of your meaningless life. Yeah. <laughs> your meaningless life. That keeps you from yeah. being too puffed up, George. <laughs> Well, I just, the, the Ecclesiastes talks a lot about like, look, you know, another thing that it says, what does Ecclesiastes say about wise men and foolish men? They disappear and both, they're no more. Yes. You can be, and the earth remembers them no more. <laughs> well, that's exactly what it is. The same book that says, look, the reason that you should enjoy your wife and your life and your food and your wine is that it doesn't matter if you're a fool or a wise man, you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then you'll be forgotten. Well, another quote, see if you recognize this one. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Mm-hmm. Do you know Sol- where that's from? Solomon. Actually, that's from the New Testament. That's James 4.14. Oh, it is. Yeah, I, I thought that all the, the, that wisdom, that existential wisdom stuff was in the Old Testament. That's oh, 414. from James. I'm going to have four, chapter 4.14. Yeah, I like James, too. But, but, but people apply all of this political significance to the Bible when the Bible keeps reminding us, you're not going to be here for very long. Right. Yeah. Um, also, here's a quote. It's not from the Bible, but it says, it's from North American Wisdom. It says, life is the breath of a bison in the wintertime. It, it just, if you've seen bison in the, in the wintertime, the you smoke. just see vapor yeah, yeah, the coming smoke. out of their noses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In and, the cold air. Right. So that's that's Crowfoot. That's a that's a a chieftain basically from, from the Blackfoot tribe up in Canada. And he was saying something biblical. Probably didn't read the Bible, but he made the same observation. Yeah. He made yeah. From from his living out on the But but the, you had people like Crowfoot, those tribes, and there were a lot of very wise uh, chiefs and Native Americans that roam these very plains that we sit on had the same kind of wisdom as the Hebrews did. Well, I think I think nomads. It's like it's like your dad not watching the television that was on in the nursing home because he lived a physical life, mm-hmm. and his life was affirmed not by medium media but by living it with his body. And I think he understood that about his wife when she had Alzheimer's disease, that if she had a stuffed nasal passage, she was going to feel bad. It didn't matter if she didn't, couldn't say that she felt bad. She was going to feel bad. And life was lived in the body, and it's not an abstraction. And he was going to go help her. Yeah. And so I have another quote, and it, and it says, for, the, for more primitive people, this was not an issue, but it's the modern man who fears age. He has no practical use for his body beyond walking from his car to his house. He who uses his body daily is best prepared to face the end of life. Can you guess who wrote that? Thoreau? The Unabomber. (laughs) The 
Unabomber. Unabomber. That's part of the Unabomber. Oh, of course, I knew that. <laughs> I, I just thought it was funny. I saved that in my in my file of quotes about aging. We can disagree with a lot of things that the Unabomber was talking about, but he was talking about in some ways it's easier for your dad to deal with a wife who was suffering from Alzheimer's disease because he had lived his life as a farmer with his body, that he was he was in the world every day and that maybe he didn't see the breath of a bison in Coffee County, Kansas, but he yeah. saw the breath of his cattle. Cattle. Yeah, he sure yeah. did. So I have some more quotes for you. <laughs> in the wintertime, when the, the pigs urinated, you see the steam that comes off of it too. <laughs> and, and you think, ah, that pig's warm inside. <laughs> well, I think this could be a new bit of wisdom. Life is like the vapor that rises from the piss of a hog. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, your father, Herbert Potts. Yeah. Actually, mom looks self-conscious. We'll, yeah. we'll attribute that yeah. to her father, Herbie Roll. Here's, a, here's a, a philosopher from ancient times who said, if I am, death is not. If death is, I am not. Why should I fear what exists when I am not? Yeah. <laughs> he also said, and this is an epigram that people have used, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. <laughs> That's age, isn't it? <laughs> when you're young, what's the first one? Absolutely. Well, I, I was am. not, I was, I am not, I do not care. So basically saying for most of human history, there was no me. Then here was me. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I won't be. And that's just how it is. Mm -hmm. I, I think anybody... That's, that, that's Epicurus, by the way. We were there when, when your friend that had muscular dystrophy died. Travis. Travis. Mm -hmm. And Travis was Travis. He was alive. And the life was still with him. But the second or the few seconds after he died, he was no longer Travis. Travis was gone. I'm sure that the concept of the soul has, goes back many, 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 many generations. And, but it comes from that, that the, the soul leaves upon death. And I think that's where the concept of the soul was developed by the Greeks or whoever it was. That you looked at Travis, he was no longer Travis. Travis was gone. And this was in the hospital. And it's very recognizable. Yeah. That so. Yeah, I, I was off in India. It's interesting when, when I heard of Travis's death, you know, yeah. in, where they, in cities like Varanasi, the old people like to die there because it's a holy city. Yeah. And then they are put on the burning gas that they're literally in, in public, basically, they're cremated. Yeah. And you don't see that in the United States. No. And so it was interesting how me processing the death of my friend Travis, who you guys saw die, yeah. um, was somehow eased by the fact that I was in a place, in a culture that... Respected death. That, that talks about it, that doesn't pretend it doesn't happen. I think part of the difficulty these days with it is that we pretend it's... It's almost like an insult if you talk to an old person like they're going to die, you know, mm -hmm. that like, like age is an insult instead of a human process, you know, that in America, we fight age by pretending to be young instead of just celebrating getting older, right? Yeah. Which is part of why I wanted to have this conversation with you. So as people who knew, know what it was like to be young and 
now are experiencing what it's like to be quite a bit older, what perspectives might you have? Let me go back to my friends that didn't get along with their fathers when they were teenagers. As older men, they really regretted that they did not. And that's probably fairly universal. Uh, and you always have something or somebody in your life that was not, you were not good to them or that something was not good to you. And as you get older, you look back, reflect back on, on some of those things and you regret them. So you have a lot of regrets in life. But then there's a lot of things that I have joy about too. So I think that uh, age uh, is is beneficial. And I, I think too, I still like to learn. That's why I love Wikipedia. Uh, what's the difference between a coronavirus and, and the flu virus? Uh, what is the, the symptoms like? Well, they're almost the same. And uh, why do we differentiate the two? And I'm still trying to do some research on that. Is what's the difference between the two? Because they all of them have are basically just genetic material with a surrounded by a protein coat. And that's those are the kinds of things that I like to tackle and get some answers for. Was your mom right? Is life beautiful? Yeah, yeah. And for the last fifty-three years, it's been the most beautiful life a person could ever ever have. Well, uh -huh. let's segue over. <laughs> let's segue over to the person who I suspect you're talking about, since you have been married for 53 years to Alice. Alice, what about you? At, at age 76, what kind of perspective might you bring? Well, I I have looked forward to each phase of life. You know, some people dread getting older, but it's inevitable, and so I think you have to look forward to that too. I have a verse that goes with this too. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And and that's a scripture verse. I used to know the reference to it, but it doesn't come to me today or right now. But I think that's just, I, uh, that's what I think about, you know, because... We have a new day each day, and we can live it fully and enjoy it or make the best of it if we're not feeling so good, you know, and be thankful and look forward to a new day. Well, I know that you've always been good at focusing on those very basic virtues. And in fact, you left a note on the counter the other day, not for us to read, but a note to yourself. And it said five rules to be happy. One, free your heart from hatred. Two, free your mind from worries. Three, live simply. Four, give more. Five, be grateful every day. Right, right, right. And that, I didn't make that up. <laughs> I, I found that and I, I just liked it and I cut it out or wrote it down, whatever. So I think one thing, just to wrap things up, one thing um, that I'm grateful for amid this weird historical time when we're living in pandemic, and I'm faintly worried about you guys leaving too far from this rural place because it could be dangerous for you, 
is it, it has allowed us to spend time together and think about this yeah. type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and someday you won't be here and I'll miss you guys a lot. So it's so, it's so great to have this time um, together. Right. And the great thing is, is that you then can recall those times in the future when we're not here. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.